Oh, hello. Fancy seeing you here on a Monday morning, but glad you could join us. Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, we will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their businesses to success in an ever-competitive business climate. So pour yourself a hot cup and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Today I have um, a very special guest. His name is Scott Beyer. He is an urban affairs journalist. Along with the founding and managing of the Market Urbanism Report, he also writes columns for Forbes, the Independent Institute, and HousingOnline.com, and gives regular speeches and radio interviews. Scott was also born and raised in Charlottesville, Virginia. Welcome to the show today, Scott. Thank you for having me, Lance. Yeah, it's my honor. Um, I've been following the Market Urbanism Report. Oh, I think a friend invited me maybe six months ago to the Facebook group. I read you guys' articles, and then I just recently found your podcast and just binged um, all nine episodes. So I highly recommend that everybody who listens to this to this podcast also check that one out. Um, but uh, you know, I've just been intrigued by what you're doing. I think it's it's something that is absolutely necessary right now, especially with the rise of NIMBYism and urbanism um, all over the United States. So. Can you just kind of give us a little bit of background on um, who you are and what led you to start the Market Urbanism Report? Sure thing. So I'm a, I'm an urban affairs analyst who has spent a lot of my life really at this point uh, writing and studying and traveling through cities. I think a, a good framework to understand what inspired my work was a couple of years ago, I went on a three-year cross-country trip where I lived in 30 cities for a month each to study urban issues at the ground level. And that's when I really became inspired, not only in some of the problems that were inflicting a lot of our cities, but what some of the solutions were. And I really uh, boiled that, kind of centered out on the idea of market urbanism, which is the cross between free market economics and urban issues. Uh, there was an existing market urbanism movement and blog when I began my trip. And kind of like you, I was, I binged on these ideas quite a lot myself as I was traveling and really saw how they related to, uh, to problems at the ground level in different cities. And so I started my own market urbanism organization and uh, about halfway through that trip called Market Urbanism Report. And it has since grown quite a lot and really expanded on the idea of market urbanism. That's awesome. 30, 30, so, so that was 30 cities and you lived in them for 30 days consecutively each. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Roughly. I lived in some a little bit longer than the others, but um, that, that uh, trip started in late 2015. I am from obviously Charlottesville, Virginia, like you had mentioned, and I went down to Miami and from there went roughly clockwise around the country. So I went through the south and the southwest and up the west coast. And um, Seattle was effectively halftime. And then I went through the Intermountain West, the Great Plains, the Midwest, the Mid-South. And the final fifth of the trip was up the east coast. And I ended, in, I ended the trip in New York City in late 2018. And so cool. I've been back in... Yeah, ever since then, I've been back in, Char in Charlottesville, kind of relaxing and and, and um, taking a break from the trip. 
And then I'm eventually uh, I'm working on a book right now about market urbanism that really um, pulls together everything that I learned during this trip and, and really makes it digestible for readers. What were you, how were you documenting um, everything that you were doing when you were on that trip? Was it were you doing voice or kind of writing things down in sketchbooks, stuff like that? Like, how, how did you keep track of all that so that you could compile this this book you're working on now? I'd say my I'd say my Forbes column was my digital sketchbook. Um, yeah, I was writing I was writing uh, columns, regular columns for several different magazines. That's how I paid my way around the country to do this. And um, yeah, just just finding different issues and cities to write about. It wasn't always policy related. A lot of it was like cultural. Um, I went to New Orleans during Mardi Gras and and sort of documented what was going on in the city during that period. But um, yeah, mostly it was writing about housing and transportation issues in the different cities uh, for different magazines. Yeah, people would be. I mean, I'm sure people are listening to this and they're like, "Wow, I wish I could do that." I mean, I, I it would be that would be quite the adventure. Does uh, what be, before you started before you did this tour though? What sort of led you to? Did you always have the you know the inkling towards freeing the market? You know, one of the, your taglines in your podcast is uh, legalizing cities, and I love that. Um, yeah. To me, it's actually yeah. like sort of you're just freeing you're freeing things up like did you is there any you know philosophers politically or anything like that sort of led you to that way like Milton Friedman I mean people like that um a little bit I would say that when I first began learning about urban issues I looked at it I looked at these issues a lot like many urbanists do which is um unfortunately they'll look at the problems that exist in cities and they'll um they'll try to think of some way that the market has failed these cities and and um, imagine different government programs or planning agendas that to try and solve the problem. And so that was, I'd say in my early 20s, that was very much my mindset as well, because a lot of the academic literature regarding urban issues um, is very much geared towards sort of that left-wing approach to how to solving urban problems. Um, I would say that a number of things began to change my mind and caused me to see that a lot of the problems in cities that exist in cities was not due to a market failure, but was due to the government involvement in those issues. Um, I'd say probably the main one is the original market urbanism blog. You know, just reading there, it's a, it's a, it's a fairly small blog that has a couple of economists and planners who write for it, but uh, they were talking about things like restrictive zoning and how that caused there to be an affordable housing shortage in cities. And they were talking about um, things like, you know, con the, the lack of congestion pricing on roads and how that leads to congestion and sprawl and, and pollution and things like that. So I'd say marketurbanism.com was an early influence. Uh, also people like Edward Glazer, um, a lot of the writing at the Manhattan Institute, particularly City Journal, was a uh, – was an early influence as well. And then also I I would have to mention the YIMBY movement, mm -hmm. which is more of a, not so much of an ideas movement per se, but it's more of a political movement, um, taking ideas that we already know and trying to make them into policy. And so I first learned about the YIMBY movement very early into my three-year trip 
And then as I began traveling around the country, I was actually able to go to specific events, specific Yimby events in specific cities, and see sort of the grassroots organizing as it was taking place. Yeah, this is that was a term that I just could not talk. I couldn't. I haven't been able to shut up about for the past week um, at my yeah. firm uh, because my there's a there's a Facebook group and a movement here in um, in Denver. We've had so much growth as you probably know over the past decade. It's just been sure. insane. And with it, you can imagine a lot of a lot of locals and it just it doesn't even matter for locals, but a lot of people have have risen up and formed these groups of, of NIMBYs. And one of them is called the biggest and most prolific one is called Denver Fugly. It's a it's a it's a it's a wild group. I can't even be in it anymore because it just makes my blood boil so much. But what it's done is it's turned my employees, a lot of them anyway, into, you know, understanding that that grassroots movements like that can really hinder what we do and can actually hurt us financially. So I was so thrilled to hear about this new movement called Yimbyism. So, but there, I, I yeah. guarantee there's also listeners in this podcast that don't know what a NIMBY is and I don't know what a YIMBY is. So if you could unpack that for us and sure both thing. of those terms, that would be great. So NIMBY means not in my backyard. And I would not call NIMBY a movement so much as it is, a general sentiment that has been the prevailing political one in a lot of cities. And so an example of NIMBYism would be, say there is a, um, say there's a, a six story downtown condo that's going to go up downtown and it, uh, and the developer is touting it as something that will have a certain number of affordable units and help with a city's housing shortage and help with, you know, generating tax revenue and everything like that. So it sounds like it would be a win for the community, but NIMBYs will come out and resist the project because they don't, well, they can have any any number of reasons. They don't want the traffic. They don't like the idea of having affordable housing. They don't like the way the building looks, um, so on and so forth. So that's NIMBY. Um, YIMBY is designed, it stands for Yes in My Backyard, and it is really more of a movement than an idea, although it's both. But it, it says, no, we actually want that six-story condo in our downtown for all the reasons that I mentioned. Um, there's a housing shortage in a given city, and we need more housing. There is a, um, there's an issue of fiscal solvency and debt that the city might be struggling with, and having a six-story condo will generate a lot of tax revenue to pay off those debts. And also, I think a lot of the YIMBY, the YIMBY ethos and mentality is just an embrace of urbanism. It's like six-story condos can be cool unto themselves. They often have retail at ground level that encourages walkability and economic diversity. And it's like it brings more people downtown, so, it, so it'll, the downtown area will feel more like a city. And so it's really a it's a a value difference between NIMBY, which says, no, we want suburbia, we want things to stay the same, we don't want new people, versus YIMBY, which is yes to growth, yes to new people, yes to the idea of city living. Yeah, I'm glad you clarified that it NIMBY isn't really a movement. I agree with you. It's just sort of always been there. It's always been there. I mean, people yeah, don't like change. Yeah. That's just the it's human, human nature. nature of change. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. And, but Yimby, but yeah, exactly. And so this, this did this, this word Yimby and this, this movement that is occurring, this is only, it does seem like it's only maybe a couple of years old, like, like you're stating, can you give us like your best example of one where you've seen them actually make some change and then maybe how they even formed and how people could do those sort of things. I'm all about citizen activism from a local level sure. because we have to take control of our cities, you know, and, and speak up. It can't just be one-sided. Sure. So, yeah, a couple of things to address a couple of questions there. Um, I think the Yimby movement started about, I want to say, like 2011, 2012. And at that point, it was really just, it, it seems to me that it started in the San Francisco area. And it was really just a bunch of people on Reddit and Twitter grumbling about the high home prices. Mm-hmm. And it has evolved. It, it evolved from that. Um, the first time I ever heard of it was in 2015 during my trip. And at that point, I'd say the Yimby movement had developed a little bit more. And it was it was a collection of like formal nonprofits and kind of like little podunk organizations per se. Um, since then, so four years later, now it's it's actually a political force. Um, a lot of YIMBY organizations now have institutional funding and they're forming political action committees and they're filing lawsuits against certain municipalities that don't build enough housing. They're proposing legislation that can that can then go to city and state levels and try to be turned into policy. Um, <clears throat> I would say probably the biggest YIMBY win would be the the statewide upzoning bill in Oregon, where Oregon effectively said that single-family zoning is going to be illegal in our cities and that that the buy-right zoning should allow either duplexes, triplexes, or fourplexes, depending on the neighborhood. So, I mean, that was a pretty major thing. Like, that's that's the state legislature saying that the entire that the entire state is going to be rezoned for more density. And, it, and granted, it's an, it's a very incremental form of density, but mm-hmm. it's uh, still a very big thing. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, Minneapolis just did this, right? Didn't they? They they eliminated uh, single-family housing housing in a lot of neighborhoods, and that's the idea. When you there was a, there on, on one of your other episodes too, I wanted to ask you about when there was this idea of of doing that, and maybe that's one of the first things that somebody could accomplish in in the city that they live in is like let's get rid of this single-family zoning. Because I think what you're trying to target is, you know, these these old pieces of property that were very suburbia, um, you know, maybe it's a half acre to an acre, there's one house on it. And then the idea is that you would be able to, you could develop um, a little apartment building or a triplex or something on top of that. But I, right. I thought there was a term that you guys threw out where there's this idea of, let, let's say I build, um, I do build a, a two-story apartment building after I've done that. Then my my neighbor yeah. could one up one up me right sort of like incremental growth. Um, is that ringing uh-huh. a bell? Yeah, well, I think the idea of incrementalism uh, that's more of a that actually came out of the strong towns movement, which is more mm-hmm. that's kind of yimbyish in its way as well. And the idea of um, of incrementalism is you rezone up to the next increment. So in this case, yeah, it, it would be like a triplex or a fourplex, and um, that that's kind of like a gradual rezoning. And the idea there is that it doesn't overwhelm the neighborhood 
with new towers and traffic, but it's kind of like just a gradual form of growth. Um, I think, I mean, there are different philosophies about this, though. I think, I think a market urbanist would say, would want to one up, would want to go one up from incrementalism and just say, do we really need zoning at all? Like, do is there is there a justification for zoning in its current format where it's trying to separate uses and and you know limit density? And so there's different there's sort of different outlooks and conversations about this kind of thing. Right, and especially as we've especially as we've uh, our the American uh, economy has changed to where we're now mostly service-based, right? And then one of the one of the ideas was with, with the original zoning was we don't want a factory next to a single-family home. Well, there's not that many factories right. anymore. So, but right. you bring up a good you, you bring up you kind of leading me into my next one, and that is uh, so zoning, right? And just maybe you just eliminate yeah. it all. Houston, I, I was I actually had a uh, one of our first employees was a um, he was a master's uh, student in from CU Denver, and he did a planning degree, and I. We always brought up Houston. He said, "Well, they technically have zoning, um, but that's where I'm going with this. Is is Houston is always for me? It's always a really good example of look, they're growing like crazy. The housing is still very affordable there, but then you always get the kickback. I do at least from people saying, well, look, but look at the flood. Look at what happened during the last um, hurricane, and see how they're allowing people to build in places they shouldn't be building. When when you do you currently bring up Houston as a good example? for flexible zoning or lack of zoning and how that can lead to the, the kind of positive things that I just mentioned? Um, and then do you get any rebuttal like that? And how do you tackle that? Well, I get rebuttals about that all the time. Um, I think Houston is such a complicated talking point that it's hard to even like summarize it in one, one paragraph, really. I mean, I wrote a whole article about it. But my general take would be that the things about Houston that work are the result of less regulations and the things about Houston that people often complain about are the example of the fact are an example of the fact that it's really not all that regulated. So I think in, for one thing Houston does although it technically doesn't have zoning it has all kinds of regulations that are are still common in American cities. So it has things like parking minimums and setbacks and, you know, deed restrictions and design review and things like that. And that that has the effect that zoning normally would in most cities. Like a lot of growth in Houston actually does end up getting pushed out of the city into the suburban areas, into the floodplains, and and sort of like that's how it, that's how it reflects a traditional city. But the parts of it that are – but it's still in the aggregate – less regulated than most metro areas and most cities. And so you do see more density in Houston than you see in comparable Sunbelt cities. And I think more to the point, you see you see more housing and net in Houston than you do almost anywhere in America. Um, Houston year after year is either number one in overall housing permits or they're in the top three. Uh, it's usually it's usually competing with New York and Dallas, and so that would be an example of that's why it's affordable. Like it just builds a lot of housing, and so even though it has a lot of population growth and a lot of corporate growth, it builds a lot of housing because it is less regulated. But um, a lot of that housing does end up being more of the sprawling kind of like generic pattern because 
there are still some regulations in place. Yeah, it's not it's not a free for all. I think that's one of the first mistakes it's that not, people no. who, who advocate for for Houston is they need to be aware of that it's not a free for all. There, there's there's a loose set of regulations. I think I think it's a good example of that of where you can still protect people and their property and what they're trying to do with it, um, and, and so they're not fringing on other people in any kind of way, but but still allow for flexible urbanism and and, and places to be affordable. I mean, that, that's just the more the more we urbanize, the more we're going to see this just come up over and over again. Is that there's unaffordability, especially with the updates of the building codes. I mean, they're just kind of getting out of control. Um, so yeah. let's shift gears into something else about that you you guys talk about on your podcast a lot that I that I really appreciated, and that was privatizing public transportation, possibly privatizing um, just transportation in general in the cities and, and different sure. different th- different things of that. And that I really like that you guys talked about you reminded me that we had private transportation back, you know, a long time ago. I mean, subways, there were, there were were subways that were privatized before and that we can look to that as like, why aren't we looking to that as a success story and seeing how we can at least inject some competition against the public sector so that there's some kind of market there rather than just a monopoly. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think the, one of the biggest stories of private transportation was the Jitney market, which Jitneys are little small buses that carry multiple passengers. And that really came about in the United States in around World War II, just a little bit before. And it competed with the municipal streetcars. And so it effectively, or in some cases, the streetcars were actually private run, but they were kind of a crony system with the government. And so they got regulated away. And they were kind of jitneys were kind of squashed before they could ever really start. So there you've got an entire century of private transit innovation that never happened because it because they the industry itself was regulated away before it could ever really start. And I think a hundred years later, you've got things like Uber and Lyft, which in some cases function like normal taxis, but also have like ride pool and van pool and bus options. And they're starting to, those companies are starting to scale into that model as well. So I think, yeah, that would be the type of thing where the government should be really open to that. Um, Cities should be like, should be doing what they can with their right of way space and, and various curb space to accommodate these kinds of services. Because I think that if they do, there, there is a market for like these small bus services that provide sort of the the buffet of options for people um, for the diverse movement mobility mobility needs of different people in cities. Yeah. I mean, I instantly start thinking about Denver and the fact that we just lost the scooters in Denver. I, we had these, I mean, mean, we just had these, this explosion of scooters and people were using them and it was cool because you could take it, you could charge it and you can get credits. It kept, you know, a couple of my employees lived downtown. It kept them out of cars if they were at the bars. Um, And now all of a sudden they just had this, this backlash. And it's, it always seems like it's done under the guise of public safety. You know, when, I mean, you talk about the metrics of, of the whole thing. What have you, have you seen any people, can you cite any examples of people that have, some of the companies that have maybe, have they fought back a little bit to try to regain that ground or at least stay ahead of it proactively, you know, with with these little scooters that you see all over the place? Even South Park did an episode about it. 
Well, it, it seems like the scooter companies have been much more polite um, in trying to deal with city governments than, say, Uber has. But I don't know if it's really gotten them any, gotten them anywhere because uh, I'm seeing a lot of them get kicked out of different cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talk about Denver, <clears throat> and it actually just happened in my hometown of Charlottesville as well, where we had a we we had we passed a set of regulations that were extremely strict. And Lime Scooters actually came out and said, your regulations are the reason that we're leaving. And so they left because it was things like there has to be a, a 350 a 350 head cap on the number of scooters. Well, it's kind of hard to scale your service if you can only provide 350 scooters. And so, yeah, that's another example. Um, if you If you look at, along with things like Jitneys and Uber and Uber Pool, scooters are another example. I think there is a whole buffet of of private sector options right now that are trying to carve into the market in their own little way, and they're bringing a lot of diversity and alternatives to the idea of urban mobility. And cities, in my opinion, just need to let it happen. Like, just let the market function for this, just like you let the market function for restaurants and for clothing stores. Like, let the different services compete with each other, and I think that really interesting uh, alternatives will pop up. And so, yeah, that's that's part of the market urbanism concept is we should be letting the market work for the transportation industry just like we do for everything else. And if we do that, we'll get the sort of diverse services and we won't all have to resort to the same option of either auto dependency or dependency on mass transit, on public transit. Right. Agreed. I mean, the market just the market generally functions perfectly on its own. It's one of it's the only I feel like it's one of the one of the ways as humans we can reflect just the organic nature of of above the earth. So um, one there was a point you guys made too on on another one of your episodes, and I really loved it. And and it was something to the tune of, look, at some point it doesn't matter. Um, if you're left, right, up, down, or or center in politics, we we're going to have to come to this conclusion that we need more houses, we need more housing opportunities, yeah. and, and we have to deregulate in order to get there, or or make more flexibility to that. Where do you, where do you see us culturally in a timeline getting to that point while we're so polarized at this point? Yeah, that's a really really interesting question. Um, because I view upzoning as a bipartisan issue, uh, it has certain an upzone like so an upzoning bill would theoretically have things that appeal to both sides. So it's on the conservative side, on the Republican side, it is liberalizing markets. It's creating supply side solutions. It's loosening property. I mean, it's uh, it's strengthening property rights. And then on the Democratic side, it's doing things like encouraging more environmentally friendly development, um, helping to end segregation, helping to um, encourage mass transit, you know, because you're densifying the housing. And mm-hmm. so you, you think it would be like this bipartisan slam dunk. Um, the interesting thing is that the so the support for it is often bipartisan. So, for example, that that Oregon state housing bill that got bipartisan support through mul- through multiple levels of the legislature 
Um, but then also the resistance to it is is also bipartisan. So there's a certain contingent of Democrats who will say things like, no, this will cause gentrification or it will help developers profit. And then there's a contingent of the Republican um, um, opposition that I really don't understand, but they'll they'll say things like, this is forcing development onto suburbs or like this is forcing different races and classes of people to live together. Um, and so that actually happened, interestingly enough, here in Virginia. We just had – there was a Democratic delegate who tried to pass an upzoning bill that is very similar to the Oregon one, where we would effectively illegalize single-family zoning and make duplexes by right across the state. And so, interestingly enough, um, the people who are really coming out against this delegate and his bill are Republican pundits. And they're trying to frame um, the the they're trying to they're trying to frame the illegalization of single family zoning as the illegalization of single family housing, which it's not. <laughs> like you can still build single family housing. The bill simply says that you can't you can't have the restricted zoning in place. That can't be the only thing you can build on a given land plot. And so. That strikes me as like very much of a misrepresentation of the issue, and it seems like a case where the Republican Party is not really like following its principles of classical liberalism and deregulation. So yeah, it's interesting. Like it, it seems to take out really weird um, reactions from both sides, and I find often that it's, it's generational. It's like the young Democrats and Republicans want the want the, the density. The older Democrats and Republicans are viewing that as like some sort of imposition that they can use various talking points to try to resist. That's so interesting about the Republicans, too. I'm finding myself just kind of blown away on this. Side. I mean, it just never ceases to amaze me what people like what they'll resist. Uh, yeah. Maybe that's maybe they're being maybe they are being nimbies in the sense where they're thinking like, oh, my God, you know, again, maybe they know, they're thinking that they can't. They don't want a skyscraper next to their house, and that's not at all what is yeah. being proposed. But you know how people are with hyperbole. Um, so yeah. real interesting. Yeah. I, I, I really hope we do. And maybe it will come with – I think what you kind of hit on at the end there without you maybe even knowing is it's a, maybe it's a generational thing. Um, maybe maybe yeah. it just comes down to us getting comfortable collectively with generation – millennials and, and Gen Z um, – which have a pretty equal spread at this point as far as political goes. Um, the older people get, you know, then they lean a little bit more right and so forth. So I think it's interesting. What is what is your ultimate goal? If you had to say one right now, uh, what is your ultimate goal with the market urbanism report moving ahead? Well, I'd like to take it from just a media outlet into something that has direct political advocacy. So um, I'm going to be I'm going to be launching a private spinoff for consulting, in which I find, you know, I work with different public and private sector interests, say, in a given city, say, you know, a given business wants or a given government interest wants a certain policy done in their city. They would work with me to try to advance that policy. You know, obviously, it would need to fit into the market urbanism goal in some way. But, I mean, I think that's really the future. It's one thing to go on Twitter and Facebook and go on your blog and post articles and 
and advance a certain message. I mean, that's important as well. But ultimately, I'd like to take the market urbanism movement more into the direction of what the Yimbis have done, which is do direct lobbying and legislation that actually tries to get the policies themselves changed. Because that's when I'm going to, that's when I would feel like I'm really doing something rather than just saying something. And so, I mean, that would, I'd say that would be the long term goal. I think it's a, uh, that is the perfect goal. You, you, you nailed it in, yeah. in my book anyway. I mean, cause you're, we're reaching a breaking point in Colorado right now where there are, there, there have been cities, for instance, like Lakewood, where they said, we're, do, we're doing a moratorium and there's nothing you can do. And at the same time, we have this massive housing shortage. I mean, we're, we're falling short by about 50, over 50% now. My wife's a realtor and she tells me this stuff all the time. And then I do development too. Um, but yeah, well, you know, so what I'm getting at is like, I think you're going to find these consortiums of, of realtors, developers, architects, build, the, your, your market for finding those people is going to be there if it's not already there as far as them contributing to whether it's a pack or just getting you off the ground um, to do those sort of things because it is necessary. We're, we're there in America. So where, where can yeah. people, if they, if they listen to this and they, they like what you have to say, and I hope they do, um, where can they follow you and where can they, where can they find your work? They can go to uh, marketurbanismreport.com. And that's not just a blog, but you can find the Market Urbanism Report threads on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, we're, we're really growing, and it's a very – it's a very active conversation of people who um, are bipartisan and multi-generational and have lots of different backgrounds, but they are very much rallying around the, around this issue and this concept. Awesome. Thanks so much for being on, Scott. You keep up the good work. Um, I would love to have you back on um, maybe, you know, in a couple months or, or even a year from now. Just to catch up with you, and, and, and I'm sure there's many more stories of success and, and even failures that, that you'd, you'd be happy to share with us because I just think you're doing some of the best work out there in the United States right now. We need more housing. We need better We need better cities. We all want better cities, uh, no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on. So thanks for being on. Thank you so much. Yeah, and I, I, think, a, I think a year from now would make sense just in the sense that Hopefully by then the movement and mark, the whole market urbanism concept is more of a political, a, a more political idea and does have actual policy victories. So uh, here's hoping to that. Yes, sir. All righty. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, don't forget to leave us a five-star review on the iTunes app. Tip your barista, and we'll see you next week for more Monday morning coffee with Inside the Firm.